And so in the end, as it was in the beginning, there are five nominated films for Best Picture. They are Elizabeth, Allison Owen, Eric Feldner, and Tim Bevan, producers. Life is Beautiful, Elda Ferry, and Gianluigi Braschi, producers. Saving Private Ryan, Steven Spielberg, Ian Bryce, Mark Gordon, and Gary Levinson, producers. Shakespeare in Love, David Parfitt, Donna Gelati, Harvey Weinstein, Edward Zwick, and Mark Norman, producers. The Thin Red Line, Robert Michael Geisler, John Robodeau, and Grant Hill, producers. And the Oscar goes to... Hello there, cinephiles and know-it-alls, and welcome to Spro and Lee Take on the Academy, the only podcast that rights the wrongs, celebrates the slighted, and rips Oscars from undeserving hands before bestowing them at long last upon the worthier recipients. My name is Lee Charles. And I am Spro, and before we get into what I have to say, I'd like to surprise the audience that we have a special guest this episode. She is my oldest friend in life, and because of her willingness to be my friend, I can kind of, on occasion, think of myself as a good person. But she does not need anybody to speak for her, so introduce yourself to our handful of listeners. Hey everyone, I'm Emily and I'm happy to participate in the great history of two mediocre guys in a room making a podcast. Nice. Well done. (laughs) (laughs) Full disclosure, we have all known each other for going into the third decade. It was 1996. And Spro was before that for me. For you, yeah. That's true. Fourth grade. Yeah. 1992. Terrifying is what that is. Well, we're happy to have you with us, Emily, because today we're bringing a three-part series, sort of a special edition for our humble little podcast of two mediocre guys rambling about movies. But in these episodes or episodes, we'll see how short they end up being. We're going to talk about some past Oscar winners whose criminal backgrounds, alleged or otherwise, could tarnish even the 24-karat gold casing on the Oscars that they are unfit to hold. And perhaps somewhat unsurprisingly, the first entry will meddle with the much maligned monster and masturbatory mogul of Miramax himself, Harvey, feed it to the plant, Weinstein. That's some beautiful alliteration right there. Thank you very much. Shakespeare in Love. David Parfit, Donna Gelati, Harvey Weinstein, Edward Zwick, and Mark Norman, producer. This is the first Oscar for David Parfit, Donna Gelati, Harvey Weinstein, and Edward Zwick. And the second for Mark Norman, who also won tonight for original screenplay. And uh, Spro did not understand what I meant when I said feed it to the plant, so uh, I, I'm assuming you did. I had to explain it to him. To- Actually, I'm not, I'm not sure what you mean. Mm. Well, let's get into that. <laughs> well, um, you know that he was guilty, among other things, of pleasuring himself in front of unwilling observers. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, I found differing accounts, but there is at least one of his accusers that claims that upon finishing, he finished in a potted plant. So I just thought that was the funniest thing I've ever heard in my life. Uh, Happy that. Okay. <laughs> so, so today we will mend the ill-gotten and undeserved Best Picture Oscar that he received as executive producer for 1998's Shakespeare in Love. Today, you, Emily, me, Lee Charles, and you, Spro, will be having a, qu- a quickie with Weinstein, if you will. Oh. You. And who else are we thanking? Um, I'd like to thank Mark Cooper, Cleany Clark, and my partner in all things, Liz Barron. Thank you. The other guy that we really need to thank, though, is Harvey Weinstein, who had the guts, the courage, the commitment to make this picture and get it done. Here he is. Say thank you, words. This was an ensemble film, and it took an ensemble team to make it. I want to thank... At Disney, Michael Eisner and Joe Roth, who've given me great latitude and great support. At Universal, Edgar Brofman, Ron Meyer, Stacy, Nadia Bronson, Chris McGurk. At Miramax, my brilliant Merrill Poster, my head of production, who rocks the universe and makes us look good. Oh man, Julie Goldstein, who is the most persevering, brilliant executive producer, to Bob Osher, to Mark Gill and Marcy Granato, who are the 
one and two most dynamite marketing team. And your brother, Bob. I'm, I'm getting there. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. We made this movie. This is a movie about life and art, and art and life combining is called Magic. For me, this was a great experience, a passion for five years. And nobody inspires me more than my brother, Bob, who is my partner and best friend every day. My loving wife, Eve, my two rotten kids, Lily and Emma. <laughs> my beautiful nieces, Sarah and Nicole. <laughs> and my mom, Miriam, the Miriam of Miramax, who makes Jewish mothers look good. Okay, and the rest of the Before you get into anything, I found this video. I got to share this video with you guys if you've never seen it. It's when he was here in Arizona and he was at this restaurant that's in Scottsdale <laughs> and it's on TMZ. And this dude, this dude is filming them and this other guy walks up and just backhands. One, two, backhands Weinstein in his fat face twice. And he's like, get the the fuck out of here, you piece of shit. And this dude that's with Weinstein's like, don't do that. He's like, fuck you, you get out of here too. He's like, you're a fucking piece of shit. And the guy's like, yeah, what are you going to do about it? He's like, shut up, get the fuck out of here. But he just, not super hard. It's great, dude, it's great. No, no, you don't have to do it hard. You just need a little... (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah. He's looking at the camera cause he doesn't want to be filmed and he can't believe that he's just been slapped but it, ha- it takes a second for him to register. Like in my heyday, I would have destroyed you but you can see how frustrated he is. <laughs> pretty great, it's pretty great. Before we get into the episode, I want to bookend our picks for who should have won the Oscar this year with some facts about Weinstein's crimes. In October of 2017, New Yorker reported that dozens of women accused Weinstein of sexual misconduct over a period of at least 30 years. Over 80 women in all in the film industry have since accused Weinstein of such acts. Weinstein has denied any non-consensual sex. In November of 2017, a group of the alleged victims, led by Italian actress, released a list of over 100 alleged instances of sexual abuse by Weinstein. The incidents in this list date from 1980 to 2015 and include 18 allegations of rape. According to the women's reports, Weinstein invited young actresses or models into a hotel room or office on the pretext of discussing their career, and then he demanded massages or sex. He told them that complying with his demands would help their careers and repeatedly claimed to have had sex with Gwyneth Paltrow unbeknownst to the actress. Shortly after, he was dismissed from the Weinstein Company and other professional associations, and he has since retired from public view and has been found guilty of some of these instances. I just want to bookend this episode to make sure that we are not taking his crimes lightly and that the reason for this episode, while all in jest are because this man was truly heinous and a monster. And it's a good thing that he is begone from the industry, even though his movie still stands on the pillars of the Dolby Theater. One thing you might want to add is he hasn't retired from public view. He's in Riker's fucking island, okay? He's in prison. And apparently he came down with COVID just like he needed a walker during the trial. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let's hope the, the COVID is true. You know it's not. Well, let's get into the movie. So Shakespeare in Love wins Best Picture of 1998. Shakespeare in Love, not even the dark horse. Nobody really gave it a chance to win because this was Steven Spielberg's year. It was his baby of Saving Private Ryan. But getting into what should have won Best Picture, I think, will give us into a three-way split. Who wants to go first with who they think should have won? Or should we talk about why Shakespeare in Love should not have won? Probably start there. All All right. right. Take it away. I would offer our guests the opportunity to go first, unless you would prefer to follow our lead. No, I would love to follow your all's lead. So admittedly, I've seen Shakespeare in Love one time. It was pretty forgettable, in my opinion. I saw it when I was in college. So I didn't even see it when it came out. This was at a time that I was dating a girl where she made me go and see every dumbass romantic comedy in the theater. She's all that. And they were all the teenage ones. And there were a lot of them. Dude, even the fact that you are equating Shakespeare in love with she's all that, I think you got to give a rewatch. (laughs) Yeah, maybe I should. You know what I remember as being an actual powerful moment in the film? was Judy Dench. That's what I remember oh. from that movie. And of course, Gwyneth Paltrow's breasts. So, but that's it. I, we I, you good. know what I appreciate about you, Lee, is your consistency. <laughs> from 1996 till now. <laughs> 
Broy to remind me that Ben <laughs> Affleck was in it. I completely forgot. I, I was like, I was like, it's Joseph Fine, it's Jeffrey Rush, it's uh, Judy Dench briefly, and then obviously Gwyneth Paltrow in the lead. Yeah, stacked cast, and and he was um, Mercutio of the RNJ there. Yeah, they had a shout out to Marlo. What? All right, so. Fuck you. I'm just going to go. I was delighted by Shakespeare in Love. And not just because I was and still probably will always be a theater nerd. But, you know, there were so many really brilliant shout outs in the script to all these different Shakespeare titles, plot points, little Easter eggs that were there for people who had any sort of knowledge about Shakespeare's past, about about the rest of his canon. His oeuvre. So, Sure. So there was so much in it that was delightful and really lovely and even, you know, got into some really nice feminist, albeit white, but feminist ideals about how it is that we perform and women being able to perform and and stuff like that. So, I mean, I absolutely was delighted by Shakespeare in Love. And I remember when this won, I was like, ah, that's so fantastic. Of course, knowing what we know now and knowing, you know, it's, it's a, it's a tough question of this entire podcast of, you know, when is it that you ignore the work of that everyone else has done for the film for at the price of, you know, for that one person's actions. I know what Spro would say to that. Spro would say, if there's one bad apple in the bunch, fuck the whole barrel, right? Yeah. That's how I punish, man. That's how I punish throughout the whole life. (laughs) Old Testament motherfucker. I'm so glad you're educating our youth right now. <laughs> that's how I do it too. If one kid in the room is in trouble, then they all lose something from it. That's yeah. I'm a Jewish god. I'm sorry. The <laughs> but here's the thing. This isn't just because there's a lot of backstory of Weinstein buying this award. That it wasn't just given free willy nilly. The fact that he was greasing palms and campaigning hard and making promises. And as people know behind the scenes, or I've said behind the scenes with Weinstein, he pushes his thumb down hard on people. And so they were saying that he was doing this across the industry to make sure that he at least got one award for a movie that he had his hands firmly in. That's kind of why when we were looking at which awards to take away from certain people, Shakespeare in Love kind of stood out as a Weinstein project. And I understand the whole, you know, like, well, it's a shame to take it away from the producers and the director. And, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow was awesome. Like, I really liked Ben Affleck. And he, I think it's one of his greatest roles. He was perfect and funny. I'll say this too. And maybe it was a little bit of both or one or the other. I don't know. Whether he was greasing palms or threatening to slap palms, it may just been symptomatic of the same way that he treated women. Maybe he treated critics the same way. Maybe he treated Academy members the same way. You know, a lot of the Academy members are also active in the industry. So maybe this was him not just greasing palms with money, but but maybe extorting people and saying, you better fucking vote for this movie. I feel like he gravitated toward that role of him being an asshole because they even mocked him on Entourage. And I don't think they would get away with it if he wasn't on board with it. We know that he is a fan of the strong arming tactics. Harvey Love. Yeah, no, no. You look me in the fucking face and you tell me why. That after 50 years of life and never having even sipped cranberry juice, for some reason I come in here and I order cranberry juice. Can you answer that, you fucking scumbag? No, I can't. But you did, Harvey. I'm gonna get fucking down. Oh, take it easy, sir. Don't tell me to take it easy. You know who the fuck I am? I was rolling my bones when you're sucking your mother's titty. Let's leave my mother out of this. Fuck you and fuck him. All right, pal, you're out of here. Come on. Get your fucking hands off me! Yo, pussy! So you let Vince do your dirty work, huh, Ian? No, he couldn't do it. Hey, he had it in him, after all. No, I didn't get a chance to either, but I'll try tomorrow. Tomorrow? What? You weak, weak, man. Hey, Harvey! We're not selling you the movie. Sorry, bro. We're gonna put it on the open market at Cannes. You're gonna have to bid like everyone else. I'll eat your life! I'll eat your life! Trap me out of my toss! And slut you down the toilet! You'll never work again! So I think I think there may have been some of that in there, but in any event, I'll give it another watch. I'm definitely more of a Shakespeare fan now than I've ever been in my life. I can recite very long passages from Romeo and Juliet, Julius Caesar, Midsummer Night's Dream. I'm very familiar with those three. 
and oh, modern. Dude, you gotta give, gotta give a rewatch then. I will. I will. I will. I'll do it. Especially for there's so much Tom. Like if you're familiar with any Tom Stoppard uh, work, especially like his playwriting, etc. Like he just nails it in I, many. I know the ways. name. I know the name. How do I know the name? Tom Stoppard, playwright first and foremost, wrote the real thing. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. That's how I know. Probably best known for Arcadia, Jumpers, and and he's done a, a good amount of screenwriting as well. Nice. Is Jumper the one with Hayden Christensen? No, no. Jumpers. Oh. Yeah. This is a play. A play. <laughs> but Jumper was a good movie. Don't knock my man Hayden Christensen. He was almost my actor for a little bit. I'm not Hayden. I am not you. <laughs> okay. In any event, we're taking it away from Shakespeare and Love. Whether the palms were greased, whether it won legitimately, we're taking it away. So where do we go from here? Let's see if we're all on the same page with what should have won. Mine wasn't even nominated, so I don't think anybody's on my page. Why don't we start with Emily to see what she would have picked, and then we'll go to you, Lee Charles, and I'll I'll take up the rear. I, well, Bro. <laughs> Bro, it wasn't the best year, but it definitely wasn't the worst year for movies. Like we've got Big Lebowski, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, American History X, mm. which actually I think if that was released now. <sighs> I bet that's, that's one that holds up pretty That's still hard. a tough movie, but it's it's also one of those movies where, I don't know, it's kind of like in the same vein as Gran Torino. I just don't believe movies where somebody who's so hatefully racist at the beginning of the movie, by the end, they're like, you know what? I was wrong. I'm not going to do that anymore. I don't feel like it's believable. And that is so depressing to me as a human living in this current time. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of cynical, but I mean, because, Gran Torino is such a steaming pile of shit and the amount of times that people were like, oh my God, it was so powerful. Why? I mean, you could jump into it like with the Crash movie. The Crash movie was about the same thing. Wasn't Matt well, Dillon yeah, like a racist right? at the beginning? And then-, and then because he was able to fulfill his machismo fantasies of saving a young woman, he's like, I don't care that she's black and that I molested her earlier. I'm a hero. I mean, there's a lot of issues with the narratives of having a certain worldview and then finding their better side and going, oh, oh I, I understand now. Um, and often because rarely do they actually have any sort of comeuppance. Rarely do they have any actual penance that they are paying for the harms that they have done. Well, I think what American History X does well is that he is banished from his own race first. He is raped in the jail and then starts going more toward on the fence with everything once he's in the laundry room with, with his friend of a different race. I know. And it's like, that's the issue too. It's the got little glimpses of like the magical Negro trope. Hey, this guy's funny. You know what? Maybe black guys aren't all that bad. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, all that being said, I would say if I was going to go with something, just looking at the limited titles we have here, Saving Private Ryan is what I would go for. Colonel, I've got something you should know about. Yes. These two men died in Normandy. This one at Omaha Beach. Sean Ryan. This one in Utah. Peter Ryan. This man was killed last week in New Guinea. Daniel Ryan. The three men are brothers, sir. I've just learned that this afternoon their mother is getting all three telegrams. That's not all. There's a fourth brother, the youngest. He's somewhere in Normandy. We don't know where. That boy's alive. We're going to send somebody to find him. And we're going to get him the hell out of there. Better put your dukes up, girl. (laughs) Who would you pick, Lee Charles? Well, I would pick a World War II film, but it would not be the one that I think everybody thinks, which is Saving Private Ryan. I would be choosing Terrence Malick's The Thin Red Line. In this world, a man himself is nothing. And there ain't no world for this one. I've seen another world. Sometimes I think it was just my imagination. If I go first, I'll wait for you there. On the other side of the dark waters. Why should I be afraid to die? I belong to you. We're going straight up that hill there. How many men do you think it's worth? How many lives? There's nowhere we can hide except in each other. thing you can do nobody can touch me for make no difference who you are no matter how much training you got how tough a guy you might be you're in the wrong spot at the wrong time you're gonna get it i want to 
launch an attack right now with every man at your disposal. I've lived with these men, sir, for two and a half years, and I will not order them all to their deaths. <laughs> Lit this flame in us. Because I have you, nothing can touch me. No hurt, no grief, not even death. Yeah, I can tell you why, if you would like to hear. I, I would, I would. Well, you know me. I have a Thorin <laughs> Oakenshield type way of explaining myself, so it may be you know, kind of going all around the world here, but I'll try and make my points. When I was in college, my freshman year roommate, this guy was the reason that I started following directors. And he had a copy of Badlands, which was Terrence Malick's last film, which I believe was 1978-ish, nine. So it was almost 20 years later that he made Thin Red Line. He made nothing in between Badlands and Thin Red Line. And just so happened, my roommate was a huge fan. And it also just so coincided, I was taking this class, which was still probably one of the coolest literature classes I ever took, which was called Literature War. And we read correspondence and we read poetry and fiction and nonfiction, everything that we could get our hands on from this anthology, uh, all dealing with World War I to Vietnam. And it just so happened we were in the middle of World War II and we were reading excerpts from it. And I came back and I told him, I said, you have that movie, right? He said, I do. You want to throw it on? And I said, sure. And we intended to watch only the first part because it's well, like he had it on VHS, which is darling. And we intended to just watch the first tape, ended up watching the whole thing. And that was the Pacific theater of the war was the, was the side of World War II. I knew nothing about nothing. I mean, I could tell you from my 10th grade, <laughs> a history teacher who I believe both of you also had quite a character. I can tell you that I knew about MacArthur's island hopping, but I, ne- I knew nothing really about the condition. In any event, it was, it was mind-blowing to me. And I had this picture with me of my grandfather. He was an MP and that's where he was. He enlisted directly following Pearl Harbor. So because we were there for years and years before D-Day ever occurred, that's where he went. And he was an MP and he had to endure the jungle and the heat and the mud and the mind games of the Eastern Axis powers. So you know what makes it better than Saving Private Ryan is Saving Private Ryan after the first half hour, which is amazing filmmaking. I mean, you take the Omaha Beach landing of Saving Private Ryan and the the nighttime air attack from Band of Brothers, episode two of Band of Brothers, you put those two together and you have some of the best recreated D-Day footage ever. But really following that, the movie kind of devolves. So just as you told me, rewatch Shakespeare in Love, I think you should give Saving Private Ryan a second look because it becomes this melodrama. It becomes an action film. And Thin Red Line never does that. See, now that I I don't remember, and I'm with you. I will give it another watch. However, what you have given me so far, as far as your reasoning for A Thin Red Line, are personal anecdotes and not necessarily what within the movie really makes you think it deserves best picture. Okay, so you have one of the greatest casts ever assembled. So much so that people like Viggo Mortensen and, and Mickey Rourke were completely cut from the film. Cats also had a stacked cast and we saw what happened there. Okay, fair enough. You have a film that in my opinion pays real honor and tribute, whereas I don't think Saving Private Ryan does. When you make an action film of like this last stand, like the the scene in the end, like where it's just us seven guys and we got it, we got sticky bombs and we got to figure out our way to hold off this entire battalion. It's inflated Steven Spielbergian bullshit. Man, but in, I so disagree. <laughs> but in, well, it's Guns of the Navarone, dude. It's high, high action. But what I'm talking about is looking at, at war as not an action film. It should be something that makes you look inward. Thin Red Line takes nature and the nature of human beings and the nature of Mother Earth, and it looks at the good and it looks at the, the evil of it. And the evil of nature really isn't evil. Okay, you got that opening scene where the crocodile very lazily slides into the moss-covered water while that, like, Hans Zimmer's, like, 
play is over. And it's sort of this idea that nature, just like humans, has the capacity for, for violence. But there's nothing vicious. Well, it's, I guess, vicious. There's nothing sinister about the violence of nature. It's natural. But when you see them take over that village and the Japanese soldier that they've taken into, um, they've captured him. And the American soldier is saying, you see those buzzards up there? They're going to pick your bones clean. I'm going to I'm going to take a bite out of your heart. And then he goes nuts in a later scene. He's got all the gold teeth that he's pulled out of the mouths of all of these these Japanese men. You see the other side as well. It's the first movie that I remember seeing that in. Clint Eastwood then did it again down the, down the line with Flags of Our Fathers and Letters from Iwo Jima, which is a great pair of films. But this one melds them both together. It's an American film, to be sure, but Jim Caviezel. I, I could go on and on and on and on and on and on. I don't want to take I don't want to take up all of your guys' time. But Jim Caviezel was never better than he was in this movie. And I'll say that fully believing that Passion of the Christ is an absolute triumph of filmmaking. Regardless <laughs> of what you think. Um, motherfucker learned Aramaic, okay? <laughs> <laughs> oh, who gives a shit though? <laughs> I'm just, I'm just giving you shit. I'm just giving you I know, shit. I know, I know. Well, I'm a lapsed Catholic, so I don't. I think Jesus was a great dude. There's nothing wrong. With, there's nothing wrong with Jesus, Emily. Is there? It's well, just the way, well. the way. It's just the way in which Jesus is used, Emily. <laughs> Um, so anyway, Jim Caviezel's role as private wit in this film is singular. I mean, I can remember times when my girlfriend, now wife, and I would be hanging out, having some drinks, and she would go, well, I'm off to bed. And this is probably why I suffer so highly from anxiety now, because I don't do, I don't do this anymore. This was before I had a smartphone. I used to take our laptop out on the balcony, and I would queue up sad scenes from movies, and I would just... For like an hour, I would just let it flow. And the scene where Private Wit, played by James Caviezel, gives his life and his whole, he gives his life for his, for his comrades selflessly. And Hans Zimmer's score plays over it. Um, his whole storyline, his interactions with uh, Sean Penn's character, his love for the natural world, his attempt to come to grips with the fact that there's a real good chance that he's gonna die. And to do it with nobility, and to do it with love for his brother, for his fellow man. And when I see war movies, and I'll reference Black Hawk Down here, and Flags of Our Fathers, if a war movie doesn't make mention of the fact that it's not about any political ideologies for these guys, that it's about the guy next to him. If a war movie doesn't make mention of that, I don't give a shit. So, you know, you can argue that Saving Private Ryan did, but Saving Private Ryan also ends with that old man in Arlington Cemetery going, tell me I lived a good life. It's so fucking melodramatic. You stack it up against Thin Red Line, you should be ashamed that you think that it's a better war film. <laughs> All right. I wish wow. I had a bell. <sighs> Ding. We really, really went far with that one. <laughs> oh, I'm, ta I'm telling you. Uh, Jim Caviezel, his character arc, spoiler alert, his character arc just doesn't make sense. He is like the Buddhist in the water at the beginning, and then he's raising a rifle at the end. And I know that you explained his character choice to me when you were gearing up for this podcast, but I don't see it. I see him getting captured. I see him letting the Japanese take him away, but he raises his rifle for what? Like the character choice doesn't make any sense. As far as Thin Red Line, I found it trite. I found it like a war movie directed by a poet. The second hour is great. I feel like you could take, you could make it a better movie by taking away all the voiceovers and all the visualizations that come with the voiceovers. And that would cut out probably about 45 minutes of the movie and keep it going on a good click. I think all war movies make the mention that war is hell, which is, you know, something that this does over and over and over and over again. And I want to put in another over to give you a, a feeling of how just long and monotonous this movie is. <laughs> Everybody's voiceovers is like the same damn actor with the same voice. So you don't even know really who is speaking. I don't think it's I the bought point. this movie because I knew that you're going to say the thin red line. I remember you making a good case for Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And for some reason, oh, I still trusted you with the thin red line. John Travolta 
is horribly miscast in this. You could see all the artistic decisions behind everything that Malik does. And really, the, my final note on the Thin Red Line is the last edit was made by Terrence Malik with the sound off and he's listening to a Green Day album. And I really want to see that edit because I feel like <laughs> Green Day might put some might put some pop and circumstance into this movie. You That's all I got on Thin Red but I'm not going to like completely bury this movie because Nick Nolte is fantastic. This is probably the best Nick Nolte you'll see. Get that blouse on, soldier. It's not a goddamn bathing beast. Put it on right now. What are you aiming at, son? Let's go get those son of a bitches. Move up. Captain, you listen to me. Now we're going over there and we're taking everybody with us. Now, do you have any more formal complaints or demurs? No, sir, not now. All right, goddammit, we're gonna do things my way. My way, you understand that, Captain? We're taking everybody over to that ledge. We may take that ridge by nightfall. I think the ridge is quite away from being reduced, sir. I realized while re-watching this movie that young Sean Penn, to me, is better than old Sean Penn in anything that he has done. Elias Cotillas, John Cusack, John Savage, all great in this movie. I, I won't take is, anything away from them. And this was Hans Zimmer before he got all Christopher Nolan-y Pirates of the caribbean This was when Hans Zimmer was was the, writing the music for Michael Bay films and Tony Scott films. Not a lot of people knew Hans Zimmer at this point. I just was rubbing my temples and sitting there well, well, and the staring at the are, screen. The listeners are going to hear how I don't shit on your choice like an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, you want to, did you want to have a conversation? Conversation makes the world go round. It right? does. It truly does. And, and Spro, I'd like to hear your thoughts on uh, who, who should be taking the movie of the year. Well, I feel weird after my rants about high art coming at you with the Truman Show, but I really believe that this sci-fi comdrom was probably the best film of the year and the most substantial moving forward, considering the fact of the world that we live in now that is obsessed with reality television. <laughs> Comments are still headed. What else is on? Yeah, let's see what else is Coming to you now from the largest studio ever constructed, it's the Truman Show! Yeah! Good morning! Good morning! Oh, and in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. <laughs> what if? No scripts, no cue cards. Morning, Spencer! How's it going? What if you were watched every moment of your life? How many cameras you got there in that town? I believe Truman is the first child to have been legally adopted by a corporation. That's correct. Brilliant. What if everyone you knew was pretending? Hi, honey. Look what I got at the checkout. Dishwasher safe. <laughs> That's amazing. What if your world was make-believe? Cue the sun. While the world he inhabits is counterfeit. I'm not allowed to talk to you. That's how I look. Not your type. There's nothing fake about Truman himself. What if you didn't know it until now? A lot of strange things have been happening. Stand by ring cam. Is he looking at us? Does he think he knows? I think I'm mixed up in something, something big. We accept the reality with which we're presented. Everybody's pretending Truman. Get out of here. Come and find me. Truman? Truman! Truman! Anything happen? No. Mm-hmm. You may find yourself in another part of the world. It's like the whole world revolves around me. Everybody seems to be in on it. I'm going away for a while. You may tell yourself, this is not my beautiful wife. You may ask yourself, how did I get here? I'm not in on it, Truman, because the last thing that I would ever do is lie to you. Fade up music. That's our hero shot. Find him. Truman, where are you going? You can tell us. How do we stop him? Give me some lightning. Is that the best you can do? Cut transmission. I like your pen. I was wondering that myself. Jim Carrey. The Truman Show. Watch what happens. Most people pre-Truman Show don't, don't really remember a world where like the real world on MTV was trend-setting, actually filming real people in real situations. Before this, it was either the news or it was scripted television and maybe a splash of documentaries here and there. 
after the Truman Show, Survivor is just coming out. Big Brother is about a year after the Truman Show. Now almost everything is unscripted on primetime television. So I feel like the Truman Show, which is studied for its takes on Christianity, metaphilosophy, simulated reality, existentialism, surveillance, privacy, and reality TV, I think is so much more of a deep dive of art. And if art is supposed to be a mirror of society, I think this movie is it to the extremes. Interesting. That's uh, No, I'm, I'm super not, down yeah, with this. I'm with you. Did you see it in the theater, Emily, when it came out? I did. I, I did. I did indeed. That, that movie was talked about by, well, I mean, we all hung out. So <laughs> I was going to be like... <laughs> Everybody, everybody talked about it, but it was probably just us. <laughs> no, but I, I remember my expectations for the movie of it just being some campy comedy. I, I'm maybe this is near the beginning of when Jim Carrey started to really get into some good shit. Um, well, no, this this was this was where he broke. Closest he came before this was the cable guy. This is where he really broke and and tried to do something honestly dramatic. I remember being really floored by how far and how deep and how interesting and moving this uh this was. Interestingly, we all kind of like missed the message and it doesn't work out for Truman on the show to have cameras on him 24/7 and yet the world went, mm, "I want that." <laughs> and we all just started turning the cameras on ourselves and doing TikToks and Instagrams and putting our lives out there for everyone to see. Here's an interesting callback because when I was talking about us having some of the same teachers in high school, I remember that movie, Truman Show, coming up in that teacher's class and that teacher saying, you know, it's the grand philosophical question. Would you mind being in a cage if everything that you could ever want and need is in that cage? And I was, that has always stuck with me. Emily, you were talking about Jim Carrey and how this was sort of where he started branching out. And I can't speak for all of the the dramatic roles that he's done. I, I can definitely say this is up there with Man on the Moon. I think Man on the Moon is better. It's just a better movie, but I, I would agree with that. Uh, I, I disagree. I think this is a better movie, but I think Carrie is better in Man on the Moon. I, he feels his performance in this movie, and this is my feeling of the last maybe three or four times that I've watched it, his performance feels very desperate. On Truman Show? Yes. Like, please like me. I'm stepping out the way Robin Williams stepped out. I'm stepping out. I'm trying to do something different. It does. It feels very desperate. Oh, hardcore disagree on that one. I do not remember seeing or feeling that. And I, this is a movie I've seen. I have, I have had on repeat before. I do not remember feeling, at least from my experience, a desperation in it. His best scenes are when he's with Laura Linney, because you can't, you can't be bad in the scene when you're playing off Laura Linney. That's not she true. does that advertisement for the, whatever. Whatever it is, and he's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Why don't you let me fix you some of this new Mococo drink? All natural cocoa beans from the upper slopes of Mount Nicaragua, no artificial sweeteners. What the hell are you talking about? Who are you talking to? I've tasted other Cocos. This is the best. What the hell does this have to do with anything? Tell me what's happening! Who the hell are you talking to? <laughs> What is his friend's name? That guy that's in uh, Miracle, uh, he never really popped. Noah Emmerich. And all the scenes that he's in with Noah Emmerich are equally good because you know he's full of shit and Truman doesn't. So there's that element of dramatic irony. He gets to be both funny around him, like that scene where he's sto- where Noah Emmerich stocking the, the stuff at that store and he's like, did they move? <laughs> <laughs> Ed Harris is the best thing about this movie. Other than Peter Weir's direction, all of the editing, all of the cuts between all of the surveillance cameras, so brilliant. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. That was right the fuck on. You know, I just went into a minor route hole on Noah Emmerich. And actually, he's done pretty well for himself. He's been on reoccurring on Space Force, The Spy, The Hot Zone, The Americans, and actually just directed uh, some of Billions and directed three episodes in The Americans. So he's just a sleeper. The editing by William Anderson and Lee Smith is so fucking brilliant. The way it melds seamlessly. It never feels forced. All of the diegetic shots with the non-diegetics shots. I mean, it's so brilliant and fun to watch. And then it also edits it together with all of the people at home watching him, that guy in the bathtub who's like clinging to the to the shower curtain. <laughs> oh, yeah. But it's, unfortunately, it just, it's very sappy. Jim Carrey wasn't ready 
for that kind of a role. Oh, you're fucking nuts. Okay. <laughs> you're fucking nuts. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Do you think if you didn't know Jim Carrey from like Ace Ventura and Cable Guy and all of that, that you would have appreciated his performance more in The Truman Show? I don't know that I could ever answer that question, honestly, just simply because I do. There's no way for me to erase my memory. But you see shades of Lloyd Christmas. You see shades of Ace Ventura. You see shades of Stanley. You see all these shades of the other characters he's played. Because he was pretty green up until that point, if we're counting once bitten. I mean, if you count those movies, he probably at that point had between eight and 10 movies under his belt. And that's a big role to take on. It's not about how goofy can you be. It's about how much not only make it believable that everybody in in this imagined America loves you and gives a shit about you because they've grown up with you and they want to see you succeed and do well, but then also convey this idea of basically hatching out of an egg, going from whatever Truman was within this egg to whatever comes out. Like I said, he is fantastic in all of the scenes where he gets to play off of people. And his weakest scene, in my opinion, is the final scene where he's singing on the boat and he's by himself and he's singing the song. It's Paul Giamatti and it's uh, Philip Glass's music that makes it so good. It's Ed Harris's just vitriol, you know, just super pissed off and then talking to him. But even when he's on those steps, you're never in my head. All that stuff, the weakest part of that performance. I think it's a fantastic movie. I own it. I love rewatching watching it. It touches me. I just think that that third act, the resolution when he has to do it alone is the weakest part. And you are entitled to your opinion. As a good friend used to say, we're all entitled to our wrong opinion. The only opinion that I have on Saving Private Ryan is when I think about the film, I think about the the entertainment tonight, the news reports of World War II veterans coming out from the film, tears streaming down their face because they feel like Steven Spielberg captured Normandy brilliantly. And so when I think about Saving Private Ryan and putting that on the pillars of the Dolby, I kind of think about that maybe the movie wasn't made for me and that if it takes a period of our history and puts it on celluloid for all of us to view of what it was like on that day, on one of the biggest days of our history or one of one of the days that we could be proudest of, I guess, in our history. Yeah, I would be okay with Saving Private Ryan going up over Shakespeare in Love and definitely over The Thin Red Line. I think I can say the same thing, honestly throw the thin red line away. I need to see Shakespeare in Love again because I didn't rewatch it for this podcast. I just, I'm basing it all on on Weinstein's little indiscretions. Do you really want to call them little indiscretions? (laughs) (laughs) I think I need to see Shakespeare in Love again because I think Emily has made a pretty good point. I have such a, a deep love for for Shakespeare now. There's also something about actors that we uh, have specific biases or we have certain ways that we look at them. Thinking about Tom Hanks's performance in Saving Private Ryan and seeing him as an unlikable character, you know, it's it's much easier I imagine for for us to have someone like that have a bit of a redemption and become likable by the end, but it yeah, I I remember there were specific things in that group of actors that also clicked well enough, you know, I was with them. I was there with them on the journey, even though uh, I love how Spro just put it. It's like, and maybe parts of this actually weren't for me. I just think it's just one of those movies that I feel like I was swept up in it. And this, I was young when I saw this. I was 16 years old when this came out because it came out like summer of 98. So, you know, it was very easy for me to get swept up in it. This was when the whole resurgence of the greatest, Tom Brokaw had just released that book, The Greatest Generation. Everybody was talking about the anniversary of the VE Day and blah, 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 blah. Everyone was looking back on this. I think Band of Brothers was in production at this point. Mm -hmm, So I got mm -hmm. swept up in it. But when I look back on it, I don't think it it quite holds up beyond the first 30 minutes here and there. And Barry Pepper, amazing. Giovanni Ravisi, Scientologist, but amazing. Tom Sizemore, drug addict and woman beater. Fantastic in this movie. Tom Hanks has done better stuff than this, in my opinion. Well, of course he has. I'm not saying that it's the best script that's ever been. And then Matt Damon. They're dying for Matt Damon with his with his <laughs> crying bullshit. What an asshole. <laughs> you ever notice how he cries like in Interstellar when they pull him out of that tube and he's like <laughs> 
I hate him. You don't know how much of that shit is probably, how many different takes they took, how many different ways that he probably did that. And then at the end of the day, it's like, it's not fucking up to him. And he's doing the Rob De Niro from Goodfellas when he finds out that Joe Pesci's dead. <laughs> the blubbering with no tears. Go fuck yourself. What if that's how he really cries? Christ almighty. Oh, dude, dude, dude. Come on. Yeah. Have you watched like Patrick Stewart in like a grand Shakespearean role? Like it, fucking, you know, you know what I you gotta haven't. do is you gotta look up Patrick Stewart and the lesson on passion and coolness done by John Barton series. It's like, what is the whale? Like the whale that someone can give when crying or when in Shakespeare, we have the O's that are there. Can you think of any other actor, any other performer having a wailing sob or cry that you believe? Uh, Claire Danes. You said the word wailing and I immediately thought of Claire Danes when she uh, watches Romeo die. Okay, a man. uh, A wailing cry. If you gave me a second, I probably could think of one. I'm just enjoying this conversation. Um, some of your sexism is is showing there. Mystic River, I'm, Sean Penn. It's melodramatic. Is that my daughter in there? <laughs> so bad. It's so bad. Oh, God, you really have like, a, you're just not down with, with what? large like shows of emotion. I got done telling you that I think having a good cry is incredibly therapeutic. It's the audio that I'm, I'm hearing that you have an issue with. Yeah. The one that's coming to mind now is De Niro, actually. And De Niro and, and Damon's wailing cry is pretty similar. Did you ever see The Mission? No. The Mission. Ennio Morricone did the music. It was Jeremy Irons as a priest and Robert De Niro as this like convicted, he was like a thief slash murderer. And he was sentenced to have to go to this mission in like South America and help out. Part of his penance is they strapped this rope with a bag of giant rocks. And he has to carry this bag of giant rocks up a sheer cliff. And he gets to the top. One of the the natives comes over and saws the fucking rope and cuts it and the rocks go falling. And as soon as the weight comes off, his facial expression changes. He lets out this cry that is just like, I'm so blessed. But that's the only one that comes to mind. So I'm sexist and I don't like watching (laughs) men wail cry. Just take a look at it. You don't have to change anything. You just got to take a look and see what, what might. No, this is all about why you don't like Saving Private Ryan. Well, I mean, yeah, that's true because Private Ryan is a shitty actor and I don't give a fuck about his backstory. This this one night, two of my brothers came and and woke me up in the middle of the night. They said they had a surprise for me. So they took me to the barn up into the loft and there was my oldest brother, Dan. With Alice, (laughs) Alice Jardine. I mean, picture a girl who just took a nosedive from the ugly tree and hit every branch coming down. (laughs) And Dan's got her shirt off. He's working on this bra and he's trying to get it off. And all of a sudden, John just screams out. Danny, you're a young man. Don't do it. And so Alice Jardine hears this and she screams and she jumps up and she tries to get running out of the barn, but she's still got this shirt over her head. She goes running right into the wall and knocks herself out. <laughs> so now Dan is just so mad at us. He, he, he starts coming after us. But, but at the same time, Alice is over there unconscious. He's got to wake, wake her up. So he grabs her by a leg and he's, drag, he's dragging her. At the same time, he picks up a shovel and he's going after Sean. And Sean's saying, what are you trying to hit me for? I just did you a favor. <laughs> and so this makes Dan more angry. He tries to swing this thing. He loses the shovel, goes out of his grasp, it hits a kerosene lantern. The thing explodes. The whole barn almost goes up because of this thing. Uh. That was it. That was the last, that was, Dan went off to basic the next day. That was the last night the four of us were together. Well, he was really good in Courage Under Fire. I don't hate the movie. I own it. 
And uh, I think it's an excellent depiction of the European theater of World War II. I think if you were to rewatch it, just as I'm going to rewatch Shakespeare in Love, and that's a promise, I think you're going to see that your mind has colored it a little bit differently than it really exists. Yeah, again, I'm not saying that it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. And I certainly don't doubt that it has changed in the past. Like, I probably watched it again, maybe five years ago. And I would just say, if someone sat me down and was like, do you want to watch Saving Private Ryan or The Thin Red Line? It would be no contest. But I just again, re-watched- Spielberg is on a couple of my top five lists. So, you know. Is this his last, like, great movie? No, I would say 93 was his last great year with Schindler's List and Jurassic Park. I don't think he's made anything that touches those two movies since then but i'm saying like this is a oh you wouldn't say this is a great saving private ryan wasn't a great movie you said was this his last good movie i would say no the duo of jurassic park and schindler's list in 93 was his last good movies i feel like my question is confusing do you think saving private ryan was a good movie (laughs) (laughs) Uh, yeah yeah i do do i think he deserved best director for it no no you know what yeah he deserved best director for it and the disconnect there is because that's when they started splitting well if this one best director obviously it's going to win best picture and this is when they started kind of splitting that i just want to take a moment for a quick imdb search of steven spielberg and seeing that the last tv series episode he directed before going full into movies was an episode of columbo i just really want to share that (laughs) that right before before Duel or right before Jaws? Columbo was right before Duel. Duel in 71 and then Jaws in 75, which is still on my top five favorite movies of all time. Oh, without a doubt. What an amazing movie. Could we come to a consensus with the three films that we talked about to take the helm of Shakespeare in Love? We have The Thin Red Line, Saving Private Ryan, or Truman Show. Would any of those go up on the pillars of the Dolby as one of the best films of all time? I am more apt to fall towards uh, if we're going with one of these three options. If not Saving Private Ryan, I would slide my vote over to The Truman Show. I think if this type of movie was made now, it would be in a front runner position. As far as my vote goes, and since we have three people, we could probably come to an end. Obviously, pitch the Truman Show, I would be fine with saving Private Ryan. So I would throw this over to Lee Charles to get the deciding vote. Or you could say, screw you guys, I'm going home and not giving you anything. I know when I'm outnumbered. (laughs) Between between Truman Show and saving Private Ryan, I would absolutely go with Truman Show. I think it's continued relevance in our society is it's immeasurable. I, I still maintain that Carrie's performance is, is desperate and amateurish at points. That is so fucking harsh. <laughs> like, you're like, you're like, oh, it's still good, but it's desperate and amateurish. Like, that's so the point. spectrum, man. I said, I said at points. <laughs> I, but I think I think uh, Philip Glass's score. I think Peter Weir's direction. I think Ed Harris's performance. Noah Emmerich, Laura Fuck, and Lenny. I mean, it's it's chock full of great performances. So uh, yeah, I, I, if pressed, I would I would give it to Truman Show over Saving Private Ryan. I think Saving Private Ryan is a speaking personally. If I'm gonna watch a war film, I want to watch something poetic. I want to watch something that smacks of Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon and Norman Mailer. I don't want to watch the man who made E.T. and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom give me uh, a war film. So. Oh, you cannot even pretend that the style is anywhere near that's the style of... Uh, Emily, I, I can and I do. <laughs> well, you can just be over there and be fucking wrong. Well, my... <laughs> You are entitled to your wrong opinion. (laughs) There you go. So if if we can just really quick without any kind of explanation, my dark horse, the one that I would love to go for, but I don't feel as though would ever be considered with any kind of credibility, real true credibility as an Oscar winner for Best Picture would, would be the Coen brothers, the Big Lebowski. I would have been happier to discuss the Big Lebowski over Thin Red Line. You should have rode your dark horse in there, cowboy. So you heard it here first, the best picture of 98. We're going to take away from Shakespeare in Love. Not saying it didn't, it wasn't a good film. We all actually probably enjoyed it. Uh, Lee Charles is going to go back, take another rewatch. And we, maybe not unanimously, and with smiles on our faces from all three of us, 
but we would give it over to the Truman Show for the year. I do want to back end the episode with where we are at with the Harvey Weinstein where we are at with Harvey Weinstein's allegations and convictions. Um, the criminal investigations also into complaints from at least six women are ongoing in Los Angeles, New York City, and London. The scandal triggered many similar allegations against powerful men in the industry, which has become the Weinstein effect and led to the ousting of many of them from their positions. It also led to a great number of women to share their own experiences of sexual assault, harassment, or rape on social media under the hashtag of MeToo. Former colleagues and collaborators of Weinstein told reporters that these activities were enabled by employees, associates, and agents who set up these meetings, as well as lawyers and publicists who suppressed complaints with payments and threats. I would like to go after all of them, as Lee Charles has said, that I am very Old Testament God, and I believe we should crumble the empire. Bob Weinstein, for example, was allegedly involved in three settlements with accusers, uh, and the Weinstein company has, I believe, been... They're bankrupt. They don't yeah, run. they're gone. Yeah. They're bankrupt. Yeah. They, <clears throat> all good. In May t- 2018, Weinstein was arrested in New York and charged with rape and other offenses, and in February of 2020, he was found guilty of rape in the a third degree and a criminal sexual act. In March 2020, he was sentenced to 23 years of imprisonment. He was transferred to Wendy Correctional Facility, where he might spend the rest of his life and probably, no, definitely should. If I could add on, the Me Too Me movement Too. was actually founded by Tarana Burke in 2006. It was reactivated when the Me Too hashtag was brought up again by Alyssa Milano. Who is Tarana Burke? I've never heard that name in my life. She is the one, so it's a, a woman who created the, the Me Too movement. She was the founder of the movement. It's a less known name, which is really unfortunate because this is the person who originated it. Um, exactly. She's an American activist from the Bronx. She began using the phrase Me Too to raise awareness to the pervasiveness of sexual abuse and assault in society in general, and had used it in her Just Be Incorporated, the work that she was doing there. And then in October 2017, actress Alyssa Milano encouraged women to say Me Too if they've experienced sexual harassment or assault. The hashtag became popular again, and Milano quickly acknowledged that it was Tarana Burke's earlier use of the phrase on Twitter that she was referencing. Was she an actress? No, no, okay. no. This so was, it wasn't even about the entertainment the industry. No, entertainment industry. Okay, interesting. I never yeah. knew that. Tarana Burke. Yeah. So it's you know as far as making sure we give credit where credit is due. Tarana Burke is the uh, is the founder. And if anybody wants to know anything more about the Harvey Weinstein scandals to conviction, I definitely recommend the Ronan Farrow podcast, Catch and Kill, or his book under the same title, which goes into everything about Rose McGowan and his troubles to try and get the story out with NBC and New York Times and everything that he was going through as a journalist and Harvey Weinstein's power to suppress the story. All great stuff. I think of my boy QT, who his entire career is sullied by the fact that he's been with Weinstein. And it's really unfortunate because one of the accusers of Weinstein was one of his girlfriends. And he was quoted after all this came out as saying, I knew enough to do more than I did. And that's kind of damning. He didn't come under a whole lot of fire for saying that, but he did come out and say it. He did come out and admit what he did. And it was a form of culpability that he knew more uh, than he let on and did less than he probably should have. Well, we want to say a big thank you to you, listener, Mr. or Mrs., for sticking with us through this entire thing. I hope you enjoyed it. I think this might have been my favorite podcast that we have recorded thus far in season one of Spro and Lee Take on the Academy. It's been a blast having you, Emily. Good God in heaven, I hope you come back because like sex, podcasting is better with more participants. Uh, I have a lot to say about that, but first I'll just say thank you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure, gentlemen. And uh, yeah, yeah, hopefully we'll we'll do it again soon. Boy, I hope so. I've been waiting to use that line. You got to know I've had that. I've been I've had that pocketed. It's been chambered the entire time. Uh, all right, Truman Show. 
you win, that's the ball game. Thank you for listening. Thank you, listeners. Uh, both forget what you used, but you definitely left out non-binary listeners. So thank you, all <laughs> listeners. Good evening, good afternoon, and good night. Oh, that's fucking perfect, dude. Say something. Well, say something, goddammit. You're on television. You're live to the whole world. In case I don't see ya. Good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of Spro and Lee Take on the Academy. All the film snippets you heard are from great films, which we urge you to check out. And while you're waiting for the next episode, check us out on Instagram at Take on the Academy, or if you're old like us and still on Facebook, find and follow our little group, Spro and Lee Take on the Academy. During the interim, our social media coordinator will share some supplementary pics and videos to enhance your experience of each episode. We'll be back in two weeks to debate the best picture of 1980 when ordinary people won. Ah, but something extraordinary happened that year. Extra, extraordinary. Yeah, some raging bullshit happened that year. <laughs> but we'll get into it. Yeah, we will. Two weeks. October 12th. Cannot wait, my friend. And uh, until then, stream on. You want another slice? No, I'm okay. What else is on? Yeah, let's do what else. Where's the TV guy?